Welcome to the Wellness and Wanderlust podcast. We're here to demystify wellness and help you add a little adventure to your life. Tune in for a new episode every week where we'll hear from incredible guests and talk about ways to be happier and healthier in our new normal. I'm your host, Valerie Moses. Let's get started. Hello, my friends. I am so grateful that you're here with me today at Wellness and Wanderlust. I'm your host, Valerie, and I'm really glad that you found us. Thank you for being a part of this community and for tuning in to episode 128. Wow, that's wild to think that we are already at 128. But our conversation this week is an incredibly impactful one, and it's on a topic that is often stigmatized, but it touches every single one of us in some way. Our guest is Mike Gibson, a former NFL player and now addiction counselor at the Mental Health Center of San Diego who shares his journey to recovery. In our conversation, Mike and I talk about his retirement from the NFL and the toll that this transition played on his mental health. He shared what that road to sobriety looked like and the mindset shifts that can help us all out in challenging times. We also discuss how addiction is considered a family disease and what loved ones can do to show our support while setting boundaries and protecting our own energy. This was such a great conversation and I can't wait for you guys to hear it. So let's go ahead and dive into this week's episode with Mike Gibson. Hey, Mike, thank you so much for joining us at the Wellness and Wanderlust podcast. No problem. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm really excited to get into your wellness journey and really dive into your story today. Before we do that, why don't you first introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah. So my name is uh, Mike Gibson. I live in San Diego, California, and I am the Director of Community Outreach for the Mental Health Center of San Diego. And uh, I have five years of sobriety, over just over five years of sobriety for myself. And that's about it. That, that's what I do now. Played six years in the NFL. And, uh, you know, that I've had my own struggles with my mental health and substance abuse. And my substance abuse was essentially a result of everything I was struggling with, you know, with my mental health and the stress, the anxiety, um, the depression of not only when I was playing, but when I retired as well. Well, I'm sure that has to be such a difficult transition for so many. And first of all, I want to congratulate you on more than five years. That's an incredible accomplishment. Thank you. Of course. And I know that it can be really hard to stick to. And I'd love to know what that journey has looked like for you going from NFL to becoming involved with the mental health center and how, how you came out the other side on that. Yeah, no, definitely. It was, um, you spoke about the transition period and that was the thing that I struggled with the most was that transition period. There's not many resources for retired players once they retire. Uh, you know, so once you, once you turn in that paperwork and you're done playing, the sport moves on and life moves on for those individuals that, that you played with, you know, unfortunately in that line of work, uh, people get cut and they come and go on a daily basis. So we're so used to seeing people come and go disappear and not talking to them for a while. And uh, there's a lot of people that myself included that I haven't spoken to or called and checked up on still to this day. So I totally struggled with the fact that I wasn't around the locker room every day. I didn't understand what type of impact that had on my mental health and everyday life. So once I had retired, my sense of purpose, right? Like that, that's what I struggled with. You know, I thought my purpose from the time that I was eight years old and I wanted to play in the NFL, I thought that was my purpose in life. And the reality of it is, is my higher power had different plans for me. And that was just a short portion of time that was something that I did. 
And I truly believe that doing what I do today, working with individuals struggling with not only substance abuse, but mental health disabilities and getting them the help that they need, that is my purpose. I think that's so inspiring. And, you know, a theme that comes up a lot on this show is about turning that pain into purpose and finding those ways that we can help people with the struggles that maybe we've had to be that resource that you wish you had during that time. And so I really do commend you for taking that path because I think I think a transition for anyone, especially for you with a job that, you know, something that not that many people get to do, something that you've dreamed of since childhood. I mean, that that really has to, I mean, it's such a huge part of your identity and I'm sure that has to be so challenging. Yeah, no, definitely. One thing that I struggled with, you know, I I didn't go to treatment one time, you know, for me, I went multiple times and a few things that kept me out there. One uh, was my pride and my ego. And the other thing was, I thought I was terminally unique. You know, I, I thought that because of my ego, there was nobody else out there that has gone through what I've gone through that has done the things that I've done. So how can they relate to me? I I felt like nobody could. And once I was able to have a little bit of humility and uh, it took a lot for me to get there. (laughs) So it didn't happen overnight. You know, it took all of two years and consistent mistakes on my, on my end to, to reach that humility. That's when I started to realize that I'm no different than anybody else. Well, I think that ego piece ties in for so many of us because I think any challenge you're going through, it feels oftentimes so lonely and so isolating. And you think like no one has had it as bad as I've had it or no one has my experience. And maybe they don't have your exact same experience because we you know, the the sum of everything that we've gone through. But the more that I've gotten to know people and even people with different, much different stories than I have, the more that I find that we can all kind of relate. And I found it so interesting. I was listening to a show not too long ago and it made sense to me, but I'd, I'd never really heard this before that one of the most common or really the, the most common indicator of relapse, and I don't know if this is true, was stress and anxiety and like stressful events coming up. And I think that while the stressful events may differ from person to person, that's certainly something that a lot of us can relate to in a, in a different way. Yeah, no, definitely. I think, you know, everybody handles stress and anxiety and in all different facets, right? Like, and the one thing that I've learned over the last five years, especially is understanding that, you know, alcohol and substances are just a symptom of ourselves, right? Like, the importance of treating somebody who's struggling with alcohol abuse or substance abuse is treating the individual. If you treat the individual's mental health, the substance abuse and alcoholism will subside. And part of that process, you know, is, is really diving deep, getting to know the individual, you know, the, the therapist getting to know me and, and really pulling it out of the individual. And once you do that, you're able to, to work with the client or work with the other person. And once that depression, anxiety, um, fear, fear is another big thing. Once you're able to treat that, th- then you're able to start treating the alcoholism and substance abuse. It's, I guess the layman's terms example that I use is, you know, an individual breaks up with their girlfriend, right? They're devastated. What, what's the first thought that they need to, that they do, right? Oh, I need to go get a drink to drown my sorrows. They're consuming a foreign substance to change the way that they feel. And that's what I did for so long, right? I had the depression, I had the, the anxiety, the social anxiety, right? So what did I do to cover that up? I use substances to help cover that up. 
I'd like to consider myself, you know, an extrovert, but I do have like introvert uh, tendencies, right? And one of those, when I get into a large group, I get social anxiety. Back when I was drinking, I have a few drinks and I turn into this very outgoing person in a large crowd. So to this day, you know, I can get in a small group of people that I know and be the most outgoing person in the group. And then all of a sudden an outsider comes in who I don't know and I've shut down. It's that social anxiety and you know, I, I still deal with it today to say that, you know, I don't have those stresses. I don't have those anxieties that you were speaking of. And still, if I said I didn't still have those struggles, I'd be lying to you. It's just, I, I learned, I know how to deal with them today in a healthy way. I mean, that's so important because I think everybody at one point or another, whether it's whether it's a substance or really anything, I think we all find these numbing tendencies, whatever it might be. And I, I've certainly found myself with a drink because I can be shy in a situation and it like people also, I think, open up to you more when you have the drink in your hand. I was at a dinner not too long ago and I wasn't drinking and people were immediately asking me questions about it. And and I think also as a woman, sometimes you get the questions of, are you pregnant? It's like, no, I just, I don't want to drink. But, um, <laughs> you know, but even I've been, I work a lot with college students in my day job. And one of the things when we talk about networking events, one of the things that I always hear as like a, a, something for the introverts to do, myself being an introvert as well, is to hang around the food table yeah. because it's something that kind of like you have something in your hand and it makes you a little less nervous and it's fine if you want something to eat but it is something to kind of be mindful of and I I notice this more and more the the farther along in my career and the more of these events I've gone to that yeah when when I have been shy in the room you kind of gravitate in that direction and it really is a numbing technique, I think, for so many of us. And it really did tie into the social anxiety. And I found that maybe instead shifting to maybe taking some deep breaths in the car before I go in or finding other things I can do. But, you know, it's definitely something I think that's very commonplace in our society is to find some way to make it easier for ourselves and doing that with some kind of substance or I think even considering food as a substance in that case. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 many different coping mechanisms right? There's some healthy, some unhealthy. Alcohol and drugs, obviously not the healthiest thing in the world. Food can easily become that coping mechanism. The gym, nature, you know, everything is, if you consume those things or use those things to consume you, I should say, uh, they, they will eventually become a problem, right? You know, food, diabetes, going to the gym too much, injury, Drugs and alcohol, self-explanatory, right? You know, you use the opposite gender, whatever your gender preference is, right? It all creates issues, you know, if you use it in excess. But they're all coping mechanisms, you know, to, to help hide individual insecurities. Absolutely. And now I'd love to know, because I think I, I hear this with a lot of people that when it comes to addiction and that recovery process, that a lot of times it, it does take more than that one time. And I'd love to know for you, what inspired the breakthrough that led to five plus years of sobriety? What kind of took you down that path and made that the time that the changes were were made and, and really stuck for you? Yeah. You know, it's, it's people always talk about digging yourself a hole. You know, I, I tell people uh, or individuals that are looking to get treatment or family members, right? I'm like, the hole's as big as the shovel will keep on digging, you know? And, and for me, I let it get to a point, you know, I, I've 
had, you know, I was born and raised in Napa, California, right? Wine country. I owned a very beautiful home in Napa. I had cars. I had a great marriage. And for me, losing the houses, losing the cars, my marriage was in shambles. You know, we've worked it out now. But at the time it was, we were going through divorce. I couldn't even get a bank account. You know, I was in a sober living. Uh, in my last relapse, I had a, I was in my sober living and I had relapsed. And all I had was two trash bags. You know, I had no money. My family had as long, you know, as long as I was doing well, my family supported me. But the second I started making mistakes, they, they set great boundaries and, you know, they didn't want me calling. They didn't want me coming around. They could tell right away when I was under the influence. And so one thing for me was having nothing that like I spoke earlier about the humility and um, going into treatment and having only, I literally had two trash bags full, one full of clothes, one full of shoes. And, um, you know, like I said, I couldn't get a bank account and the, the gift of desperation, that's a term that is frequently used in recovery and it's hard to understand it now, but I'm grateful uh, for those things that I went through. Cause if I didn't go through those things, I'd still be out there today. If I didn't have those, you know, non-legal consequences, I'd probably still be out there today. Yeah. That humility that had to be such a, I mean, again, because you're thinking about this huge transition and going from having the beautiful home and having the dream career and going from that to the sober living and the two trash bags, what a transition that had to be. But being able to use that, you know, as a gift and kind of shift that perspective, I mean, that had to be huge. Yeah. I mean, one of the um, a, a few things regarding that, you know, it's talking about my, my sponsor was amazing in my last treatment center, you know, finally getting a sponsor, finally working the steps, you know, finding my higher power. And one thing that, you know, he told me he's talking about humility, right? And he's like, Oh, so you owned, you had a beautiful home in Napa. Yeah. He's like, so is your house on a mortgage or on a, you know, a lease right now? He's, I said, no. And he goes, well, then you're homeless. Do you have a vehicle? I said, yeah, I got a car back home. And he, he said, well, is your name on the title? And I said, no. And he goes, well, it looks like you ain't got no dang car, you know? So really understanding what that humility looked like, you know, never did I think that I'm like, well, at least I'm not homeless, right? Like I have a place that I can go to and stay. And, you know, he did a great job of telling me, well, is your name on the lease? Well, no, it's not. And uh, he's like, well, then you ain't no different than anybody else. You're homeless. (laughs) So that was very not inspiring to hear, but very, um, you know, important for me to hear at the time. And, and, you know, one thing about, one thing I love about this job and and doing what I do is it's, it's gotta be one of the only jobs in America or in the country or in the world, right? Like that, the more messed up stuff you've done, the more you've screwed up, the more qualified you are to help people, you know? And so it, it makes it very unique. And the one thing that you know, the one thing that you can really do to get through an individual that's struggling is get on their level. And that's all that we ever want when we're going through treatment is to somebody to understand, listen, and get on our level. Once you're able to do that, you're, you're able to have a breakthrough with the individual. Yeah. Cause I do think again, like it is again, an isolating time I'm sure. And to have somebody like it's it's nice to know that there are people out there that want to help, but when it's someone who's gone through, whether it's what you're exactly going through or something kind of similar, or they at least know what the feelings are like, they have had some of the same struggles or temptations that can really, yeah, get on your level with that. I mean, that is going to be so much more impactful than just somebody saying, well, have you tried this or can you do that or whatever? Yeah. Unfortunately, it's not something you can learn in a book, you know, and- like I said, that that's what makes this job and, and doing what I do unique. 
the more, like I said, the more stuff you've been through, you know, and, and it goes that way for my recovery too. If I'm able to get through something, the death of a family member, a breakup or something along those lines, you know, in my recovery and I'm able to stay clean and sober, that's something that a sponsee comes to you. Somebody who you're working with comes to you and says, Hey, this is what I'm going through. I'm having a hard time staying clean or staying sober. I'm having these thoughts. And you can say, Hey man, I went through that too. It's going to suck. It's going to suck for a little bit, but it's going to be better. I promise you. Cause I went through the same thing. I, I can't stress it enough. That's what makes this job fun. It makes this job unique in its own way. I mean, that has to be so rewarding again, to be that person for somebody that can say, cause I, I do think so often the people in our lives, they want to help, but if they haven't gone through it, then some of the things they say, or if they're just like, well, you can do it. And it's like, that's great, <laughs> but you don't know what I'm dealing with. You haven't experienced this. And yeah. to, yeah, to have someone that actually has that empathy for, for whatever it is and yeah, can share like, cause I find it so validating when someone does tell me with a struggle that I'm going through, wow, that really sucks. Mm -hmm. Sometimes more so than, oh, don't worry. It's going to, you know, sometimes just like that validation of, yes, it's difficult and you're not wrong to feel that way. And here's kind of how I got through it. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, you know, be, that's the rewarding part, right? Is when they do make it on the other side and you do get, you know, you do see the individual and they say, thank you. That's the rewarding part of the job. You know, being able to help somebody get through something. And that's what at first made it difficult. My family didn't quite understand kind of what it was that I was going through. And we do, I, I do deal oftentimes with family members that just don't understand. And they're like, well, why can't they just stop? And you go into, you know, all the different studies that they've had and why this is a disease and why it's not something you can just stop, you know? And so once you can, once you can get the other individual to understand what it is that their loved one is going through, it, it, it ends up benefiting everybody as a whole, you know? So, I mean, once my family, one of my treatment centers that I went to had a family day and they would bring the family in and they would talk to um, other people that were struggling with alcoholism and addiction, but you weren't in the same room. And so it was very easy for me to explain myself and why I do what I do to somebody else's parent as opposed to my own. So being able to do that, the the other people in the program were able to do that with with my family. And that was very impactful in getting, you know, my loved ones to understand what it was that I was actually going through. And uh, it really changed the, the dynamic of our relationship. And, and that was, at that time, was, you know, completely in shambles. I hadn't seen my family or talked to them due to my mistakes and my choices, right? Probably in four, five, six months. And they ended up coming to this family day and I ended up relapsing one other time for a very short period. And, you know, my family was there for me as long as I was trying to get better. They were there for me when I wasn't doing very well. You know, like I said, they set really good boundaries. And that was one of the main reasons for me ultimately getting sober. And, and the, what, what has kept me sober is just the benefits, you know, the benefits and seeing the happiness that I have on a regular basis. I don't ever want to go back to the darkness. The darkness becomes attractive after a long time, which is, which is scary. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I really think that that family day, I mean, that sounds so amazing because I'm sure like the vulnerability piece to it, have, I think sharing directly to your own family, there's a lot more emotion tied to it. And while it's still emotional to share your story, to maybe do it to someone who is a little bit less attached in your particular situation and you're not as attached to that, you know, you don't know them. I think it's got to be rewarding because you know that you're, you're helping out with their family dynamic but at the same time you know you have that separation piece a little so your family can hear it but mm-hmm. I think it's it's so emotional hearing it from from someone that you love and I think the boundary piece is so huge but I do think that is such a struggle with just in general I think the people I know in my life and the people that I love who have struggled with addiction and with their families and and friends and I think it's something that a lot of people aren't really effectively able to do um, what advice do you have for for setting those boundaries if you have that person in your life. Yeah, you know, it's boundaries are difficult for everybody, but they work. The The hardest part of what I do is explaining to parents because this is something I can't relate to. I, I can relate to it on one side, but not the other. And in speaking with parents and, and they're asking what they should do. And, and the one thing I should, one thing I say is my disclaimer is I don't have kids. So I, I can't relate to you on that part of it. But what I can relate to is the other side of it. And what I recommend is stop enabling them, stop paying their cell phone bill, stop paying for food. If they ask for food, sorry, I can't do that. Because in reality, as harsh as it sounds is you're the one that is killing them slowly, but it, it ultimately could be that last drink that puts them over the edge. It's that last pill that puts them over the edge, the last shot of heroin that makes them overdose, right? And I say that because you're paying an individual cell phone bill. You're, you're basically saving them $100 uh, a month, right? A gram of heroin costs $100. So- Whatever they're not spending on their cell phone, that $100 that they're not spending on their cell phone, they're spending on their substance of choice. And ultimately that could put them over the top. And the reality of it is, is that $100, even though you didn't give it to them, could be your $100. And it's difficult for them to hear. You got to, you know, it's, but like I said, I'm not a parent. I just know it from the other side. And ultimately that's what ended up getting me to go get help. They stopped paying for things. I started running out of money. My cell phone didn't work, so I couldn't contact my dealer. <laughs> you know, so all these things that my family did, like looking back at it now, they, they ended up benefiting me greatly because I didn't have money to buy drugs. I didn't have a way to hit up my drug dealer, you know, so is as difficult as it is, you know, setting healthy boundaries because I've seen lack of setting, like lack of setting boundaries destroy marriages. You know, and that's parents who've had, you know, that have been married 30 plus years. And because one parent is unable to set a boundary, you know, it's destroyed their marriage. It's destroyed their family dynamic with their other children. It's difficult, you know, boundaries are hard on everybody, but they are, they're so important to not only protect yourself, protect the rest of your family and ultimately protect the, the individual that's struggling. Yeah, I really hadn't thought about that with the $100 that could go to heroin instead of toward the cell phone bill or toward food for the month because you think you're helping someone making their life a little bit easier and like, you know, taking the stress off. But in actuality, you could be enabling something that's really harmful, especially I mean, the heroin now, the fentanyl, it's it's crazy how 
it's so much different now than when I was, you know, running around doing my thing five years ago. It's scary. I mean, I, I, last week I lost two friends, two friends, one on Monday, one on Friday, you know, and, and it's, you know, those are individuals who, um, I knew for quite some time, they were able to acquire a little bit of sobriety time and then they struggle, acquire a little bit of time and then struggle. Unfortunately, it's a heartbreaking business to be in. The longer you stay sober, unfortunately, the more people that aren't going to be around. Those are just the facts. So, you know, I just look at, I just look at it now, like in gratitude, you know, grateful for what I have live, live every day. It's a new day, day by day, minute by minute. And um, like, like I said earlier, I don't ever want to go back to that. So I'm going to do everything I can to, to not get back to that life. Well, I, I truly commend you for that because I think, again, that's, it's a difficult thing. And again, so many people do have multiple attempts before they get to that point. And it's challenge. I mean, it's, it's your brain chemistry. There's so much, and again, the drugs have changed so much and to have that shift in perspective, to have these years of experience with coping in healthier ways, I think is so beneficial. What are some of the practices as you've been on your healing journey? I think we're all forever on a healing journey. What have you found to be helpful in coping with the stress, anxiety, or or just something challenging that could come up. Yeah, the one thing that, you know, just opening my mouth and communicating. That is the number one thing, right? If if I'm struggling, if I'm if I have an issue of going and talking to somebody and getting help. There's times and situations for my wife, but she's got her own stuff that she handles, right? So there's always you got to find that extra person that you need that you need to talk to. For me, I have a thing that I tell people, it's either a top 3 or a top 5. And I've told these individuals, if I ever text you with 911, please pick up because I'm hurt and I'm struggling. And the reason why you have three or five is because if that one person doesn't pick up, you got a second person, right? If that second person doesn't pick up, then you call that third person. So you, you have these people that, that hold you accountable and, and picking up the phone. That's the main thing, right? Being able to open your mouth, talk, closed mouths don't get fed. You know, other healthy ways, going to the gym, working out and get involved in uh, recovery related activities, right? Sober softball is a big thing that I do. You know, I am fortunate enough to travel around the country and do it and meet new people, people that are healthy and people that are good for me in my recovery. One thing I do try to do some meditation. There's so many, uh, holistic practices that you can do go for a hike, go for a walk, you know, and is, is, minute as they may sound, go try it because I know it's benefited me. So take a chance and go do it. Yeah. And I think it all compounds the more that you're trying out those different things and just putting that time in for yourself and that self-care. It it adds up over time, even if we don't see it. I have times where I just go outside for a few minutes and I'm thinking, well, this isn't really doing anything. And then I do find that it actually does, even if I don't feel it right away and figuring out what those things are for you. And I think that support piece to having those people you can turn to. And I think so often we do think of a romantic partner as being like the be all end all for that. But, you know, they have their own struggles. We all have our own struggles. And like while they may, well, some of them may actually be professionals in that particular space, but, you know, to have maybe a therapist that you go to and to have some of those friends that it's not going to be just the same person every single time yeah. that they're not getting that burnout from it. Yeah. Eventually it'll wear down on them. You know, yeah. it's just the, it's just the way it is. What's important for me is, and maybe you have heard of it too. Um, it's common in, you know, therapy in the treatment world, the mental health industry is like cognitive behavioral therapy. 
dialectical behavioral therapy, having somebody who's going to help you change your thinking in a situation, right? Having somebody who's going to help you change the way that you speak, right? And sometimes I don't realize it myself. So when I call somebody to complain and about something that I'm frustrated with or dealing with, you know, having that individual who's quick to tell you the truth. And, you know, I think that's important. So, I mean, uh, for example, the situation for me is hopefully I don't have it anymore, but my, in my first four years, I had my wages garnished five times from previous things. And every single time I would get down on myself, right? Financial stress, you know, is a huge thing for me. And it was something I'd get down on myself for quite often. And, uh, you know, my sponsor was quick to point out, he's like, Mike, you got a great job that pays you good and affords you the opportunity to make things right and pay off those debts. And just hearing that perspective, because I was so blinded with anger at the time, hearing that perspective and as much as I hated to hear it, you know, because I wanted to, it's easy to remain angry, right? So as much as I wanted to hear it, I needed to hear it. And living a life of gratitude is important. Yeah, I think that's such a powerful reframe because it is so easy, I think, when we're going through anything to kind of, well, why me and to have that anger? And I think the anger always masks something else. And to be able to kind of shift that and to have the people in our lives that can help us because we get so deep into our own struggles and whatever it is that we're going through that we don't always like it's hard to it's hard to make that shift sometimes on our own. And so sometimes to have that sounding board who can say, well, think of it this way and to help you along that path. Now, for those listening who maybe they don't struggle with addiction, but they have someone in their life that does, I know that that from firsthand experience is a really challenging thing. Do you have any tips for self-care for someone who is on the other side of it that you know maybe they have someone who's in recovery and they want to make sure that they protect their own energy while still being supportive to the person in their life? Yeah. You know, I think, um, going and getting counseling themselves, the disease of addiction is a family disease. And when I say family doesn't mean everybody's addicted, right? Like I say that because it affects every single person in the family. So go talk to somebody, go get help. I mean, the, the reality of it is unfortunately, everybody knows somebody that's struggling or knows somebody that knows somebody that is struggling. So I think going out and, um, and speaking to people, you know, talking to somebody, talking to a therapist themselves and getting the help that they need individually is really important. So once you go and talk to somebody, it's going to benefit, you know, not only the family member, but it's going to help them set boundaries and help them deal with those boundaries. And it gives them somebody to go and consult with and talk to and find out if they're doing the right things too. Yeah, I think that's so important because we, I think oftentimes you see someone in your life struggling and your first instinct is to help them in whatever way we can, even if that turns into that enabling piece. And I think you pour so much of yourself into the loved one and you were like, there are all the worries associated with it, that it can be really hard to remember to put yourself first. And I think, yeah, having someone to talk to is such a powerful thing. Mm -hmm. There's groups out there that are free, you know, just like there's AA meetings, NA meetings, CA meetings, there's Al-Anon meetings. And, you know, those Al-Anon meetings are for family members or loved ones or people dealing with a loved one who is struggling with, with addiction or alcoholism. They're free. So, you know, you don't have to go seek an individual therapist even though I, I would recommend it, but you can also go to uh, support groups that are free and they're just about everywhere. And I think there's a power in that too. And we actually had someone on the show 
not too long ago talking about the power of not just individual therapy, but group therapy and how just sometimes having, and, and I think maybe even doing both depending on where you are in your journey, or if you have the capacity to do both at the same time, that just having other people around you that have either, they might be at a different point in the journey, but they're still there, or just people that can understand or have some inkling of what you're going through. I think it makes you feel so much less alone. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, like I said, I thought I was terminally unique. There's nobody that was like me. There's nobody that could, that was going through the same things that I was going through. But in reality, everybody, like I was going through the same thing that every single person that I went through treatment with and that struggles with it goes through, right? So once I was able to understand that, you know, my life changed. But going to groups, seeing, I think majority of people think that they're alone and that nobody else is doing what they're going through, what they're going through. And so that's the power of group therapy. Individual one-on-one therapy is great, but peer-to-peer therapy works wonders. And a lot of the times from what I've noticed is, especially within the mental health field, individuals struggling with bipolar, schizophrenia, you know, anxiety, depression. Once you're able to go to a group with the people that are struggling with the same things that you are and talk about it and you're going, oh my goodness, this person is going through the same exact thing I am. And here I am thinking I did this, I was doing this all alone and like, why didn't I do this sooner? So it's, it's huge. It's a very important component. Absolutely. And I found the more that I I think that it's a scary thing to open up to other people, but even just with friends where you think, you know, everything going on in their lives. And when I've had times where I've opened up about something that to me felt very terminally unique, I'm like, there's no way any of my friends would ever have gone through this. And (laughs) I was at dinner one night with two of my friends, just telling them some of what I'd been struggling with. And one of them had almost an identical story. The details were, it was so uncanny, like how much of a similar path we'd we'd been on. And I felt so much less alone, even if we didn't sit down and resolve the issue, just knowing that it's not just me and I'm not the only person in the world going through this. It made such a difference for me. And I felt, I think you also feel a closer connection to those people when you do, you know, you do open up. Yeah. I I think the beautiful thing is that you opened up, right? I mean, that's the, that's the hardest part. And especially with friends, you know, there's that fear of judgment. And, you know, once your friend was able to relate to you, you know, not only does it help you, but it helps your friendship and it gives you somebody to speak to regarding the situation. You know, I think that's the, what keeps a lot of people, I know it kept me from getting help for multiple years was the fear of judgment, um, not only from what I had built up in my mind, right? Making a mountain out of a molehill, thinking my family was going to judge me like crazy when in reality, they just wanted to see me healthy, right? Let, let alone what my friends were going to think. And, and what ultimately that led to was them finding out in a way that I wish they didn't. And, and I wish that I was able to tell them and get the help that I need instead of having to go to rehab six times, having to have them cut me out of their life. I truly wish that, you know, I would have gotten it the first time, but that, that's not what my higher power had in store for me. And, you know. Well, and I think that's something, again, like so many people, it just does not happen the first time around. And I think you have, we all have our individual journeys. And I just think that when when you do get to that point where you do make those changes, I mean, it's so rewarding no matter how many times it takes. And, you know, as long as you're making the change, I mean, it's time, like people always worry about, well, it's going to take me this long to even figure this out. And it's taken me however much time. And it's like, well, the time's going to pass no matter what. So... <laughs> 
<laughs> you're moving forward. Yeah. I mean, that's the speaking with family members or individuals coming into treatment. You know, I did this myself and, you know, it's like, okay, well, the treatment's going to be 30 days. Oh my goodness. 30 days. I'm like, like, no offense, man. What else you got to do? <laughs> you know? yeah. Like what else you got to do? I'm like 30 days. That's one twelfth of the year, you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, I went to treatment for 30 days, five times, and it was unsuccessful those five times. The last time I went to treatment, I went for four months. Now that's just what I needed in particular. Not everybody has to do that, but I went for four months and, you know, I've been clean ever since. So, you know, I'm, I'm not saying every single person has to do that, but it's proven the longer you can stay away from the substance, the better chance of success you have. So I, I think that, yeah, that's funny you brought that up because that I, you know, oh my goodness, 30 days. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, it's really not that long. So. Yeah. Cause you're right. What else, what else are you going to be doing? And I think we can, I mean, we can all justify with, well, I could be doing all of these things, but maybe you can't if you're not, if you're not having that recovery, if you're not. And I think it's so worth it. The time that you invest in yourself, even if it doesn't feel like it at the time. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. And, and you know what the stigma, you know, what, what, what has been beautiful, you know, about celebrities coming out and being sober, it's kind of, you know, and, and not that it's like this trending thing, but it's about, about celebrities in particular, right. Cause they have a big influence. They have a big platform you know, and them talking about their sobriety is people listen, the government listens, right? There's a lot of people that understand they're worried about finances when they come into treatment, right? Well, the government has now recognized addiction, alcoholism as a mental health disability, right? So coming into treatment, you can collect short-term disability, right? So there's that helps relieve the financial burden of somebody getting mental health treatment or treatment for addiction, and alcoholism, right? You know, there are things that are put in place to help somebody while they're in treatment. So that to me is a huge stress reliever for a lot of families and loved ones. You know, they can't go to treatment because they have a family that they need to support. Well, actually there are these things put in place that can help you support your family while you're getting help. And it's always when you talk to somebody and they are either trying to get out of it or they have these fears and so they're thinking of ways to push it off when you have a solution for them or even they have these fears of you know not being able to go to treatment or get help because of these things and when you're able to educate them that is a rewarding thing too as well actually you can actually get these services while you're in treatment and it's always nice to hear it's refreshing to hear when an individual is excited about that Absolutely. Because yeah, I could imagine, I mean, especially if that person, if maybe if their addiction hasn't taken away their career, for example, and they are the one bringing home that paycheck and they're like, well, what happens when I, when I can't? And yeah, to have that, to have that ability. And even like hearing more recently that they're looking to have Narcan available, like a lot more readily available than it was before to potentially save a life. I mean, of course you don't want to have to use it, but to know that, you know, maybe people are starting to understand more and more because I think addiction is a scary thing, but I think when you're, when you're little and, you know, growing up and going through the DARE program and learning about, you know, this is what's going to happen with, with drugs and all of that. And you think, well, I'm never going to be around that. And then 
you are. And everybody, again, to your point, everybody knows somebody who's who's gone through it if they're not going through it themselves. And to know that the stigma for that, that people can't, like the seeking treatment aspect that is there. And I think it is becoming more readily available. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it, you know, for me, like in my story, you know, I never thought that I would be the way that I am. Do I, do I wish I, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to be somebody who struggled, you know, I'll, I'll struggle with addiction and alcoholism my whole life, right? Like it's a part of me. And you ask me, I was kind of a square in high school. I went to like one high school party. I think I drank once in high school, you know, smoked weed once in high school. You know, it was, I was so focused on doing what I wanted to do out of life, which was play football. And for me, I had an injury. I got addicted to prescription pain medication. And that's what led me down this path. Did I think I would, this was going to happen to me? Heck no, but it did, you know? So yeah, I, I don't think, um, you know, we definitely don't, you know, choose to be this way. Unfortunately, it just becomes a part of us. And, you know, a lot of it is, I know for me, it was a lot of trust in other people and lack of education. So I think the, you know, having the Narcan readily available and educating people, you, you may not know if somebody's struggling, then all of a sudden they fall out in front of you. You know, so having that education, I mean, it's more prevalent today than it's ever been. You know, I, I don't know the exact numbers. I thought I read something, you know, 80,000 people struggle with it, you know, and overdose on a, a yearly basis. So that's a lot of people. Yeah. If, if we can prevent more and more of that, because again, there is so much that isn't, of course, you don't want your loved one to be using, but if they are, you don't want them to lose their life. If if there's a chance that they can have that recovery and live the life that you know that they can, having having those resources available, having, yeah, having the education there. And I think it's it's not where it needs to be, but it's getting there. And it, I do think that it's a great, great thing to see yeah. that. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I carry Narcan. My wife carries Narcan. You, you never know when you're going to need it. Absolutely. One question I do have, kind of tying back to the beginning of our conversation, we were talking about that transition time <laughs> from the NFL into that next phase of life. And in general, I think we're all going through transitions at different points, whether it's career, whether it's maybe the relationship transitions. Uh, we went through a, a pandemic. Yeah. And there are these events taking place like throughout life. For those who are going through those difficult transitions, just do you have any advice for kind of getting through that and taking care of yourself and not turning to the more harmful coping mechanisms? Yeah, I think a, a big thing is don't be alone. You know, one thing that we saw during uh, the pandemic was a rise in mental health treatment, a rise in substance abuse treatment. And I think the important part of that is humans are meant for human interaction, not through a computer, not through Zoom, not through anything like that, right? We were meant for human on human interaction. So be around people, be around people who have your best interest at heart. And, and it goes back, open your mouth and communicate with people. Closed mouths do not get fed. So I think it's important to seek that help, whether it be with an individual therapist or a group of friends, loved ones, human on human interaction. I love that. You know, I've always considered myself an introvert and going through the pandemic at the very beginning when we didn't know how long the effects were going to be. I was thinking I can I can handle this. I like being alone. And I found my mental health was really struggling with that. And I remember even with autoimmune conditions and being, you know, a little bit higher risk potentially with COVID talking to my doctor and she even said, hey, you would be healthier having some interaction <laughs> carefully 
maybe outdoors, but you would be, you would be a lot healthier mentally and physically, like even on blood tests, if you're seeing other people and, you know, maybe you need to be a little cautious of what you're doing, but you'd be healthier and less at risk than you are sitting alone at home during this time. And it was amazing. The change I felt. Yeah. I mean, for me during the pandemic, at one point I kind of had enough and safely I was traveling across the country and, you know, I probably traveled more during that short span than I have in the last 10 years. So like I said, and it was, it was important for me and it was a blessing that I was able to thrive during the pandemic. I feel kind of selfish saying because there were so many people that struggled, but that's just what I needed to do. And, you know, I was able to, to gain a lot of success from it. Yeah. Well, I definitely think that there's just so much power in being around other humans and really the people that that have your back and that fill your cup. And so I I love that advice. Mm -hmm. I do have some rapid fire questions that I love to ask our guests as well. Can I ask you those questions? Of course. Awesome. So my first one for you, um, and I know we've been talking about a few of these, but what's your favorite self-care practice right now? Uh, meditation. Okay. Do you have a particular, do you use an app or do you have a particular practice with it? For, yeah. For me, meditation could be anything that gets you out of self. I do have moments where I do sit there in silence, but my favorite thing to do, like I said, I play a lot of softball. You know, it's something I do quite frequently is putting music on, on the headphones, grabbing a bucket of balls and a tee and just hitting it out in an open field and just being present with myself and hopefully having zero distractions. Absolutely. And I think being outside adds such a great element to it. I love to meditate when I'm at, like I live in an apartment complex, so I don't, I definitely have a lot of like the cars driving by when Mm -hmm. I'm at my parents' house. I love sitting outside and doing that meditation out there. I do feel like it adds that extra dimension to it. And then having the, the action to it too, with what you're doing. I mean, that adds even more. Yeah, no, definitely sitting there concentrating on something that takes you out of yourself. That that's what it's about. I love that. Now, do you have a one word theme for the year ahead? And if not, what's a one word theme you'd like to encompass? A one word theme, uh, progress, keep on progressing, keep on moving, trying to get better. I always say if the grass ain't growing, it's dying, right? So do what you educate yourself, try to become better at your job, try to become better as a significant other, better overall health. Um, and and better overall in your hobbies. Keep on progressing, moving forward. Absolutely. And my final question for you from our rapid fires, what are you most looking forward to right now? Um, Man, that's a tough one. Okay. So what (laughs) I'm looking forward to most, just seeing what, uh, you know, what this year brings. As long as I keep on progressing and moving forward, you know, I've done that the last five years, you know, there, there's a saying that, that I use quite often. There's no growth in the comfort zone and there's no comfort in the growth zone. So try to get uncomfortable and see what happens, you know, take chances. I love that. It leads to so many things you would never expect. Yep. I, I completely agree with that. And, and, you know, as long as I keep on striving, keep on trying to move forward and become better, you know, the opportunities are endless. I love that. Well, I am excited to see what's next for you and what opportunities pop up for you in the year ahead. Before I let you go, tell me how our listeners can connect with you and with the Mental Health Center. Yeah, so um, so you can find us at mhcsandiego.com or you can Google the Mental Health Center of San Diego. Also, healthylife.recovery.com. We're located in San Diego, California, Pacific Beach, beautiful facilities. 
Um, you can also reach out to me via Instagram at mike.gibson69. And uh, I'm on Facebook as well. So you can uh, hit me with a personal message. We have uh, 1-800 numbers that are on our websites. And however I can help you in any way, shape or form just to talk. Or if you need help with a loved one, feel free to reach out. Well, I so appreciate that. I'm going to make sure to link all of that in the show notes. And I know that our listeners will appreciate it as well. I think the work that you're doing and the work of the mental health center is so needed and so inspiring that you're able to, as as we talked about, turn that pain into purpose and really help others in their recovery journey. So thank you for the work that you're doing. And thank you for coming on the show and sharing your story and your wisdom with us. Yeah. Thank you for giving me a platform to uh, to be able to do it. I appreciate that. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Wellness and Wanderlust. I absolutely loved this conversation and I so appreciate the work that Mike and his team are doing. This is such an important topic and we all need to have more education around addiction and recovery. You might even save a life. Whether you're personally going through it right now or you have a loved one who's struggling, Mike shared so many helpful takeaways. If you or someone you know is struggling with addiction, please reach out to someone for support. I have linked Mike's information in the show notes, along with the Mental Health Center of San Diego. I encourage you to connect with them to learn more. Don't forget to share this episode with a friend who might find it beneficial. If you enjoyed our conversation, please be sure to leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback means the world to me, and it helps us improve and reach even more people. If you have a topic you'd like to recommend or you just want to chat, you can reach out to me on Instagram at wellnessandwanderlustblog or drop me a line at Valerie, V-A-L-E-R-I-E, at wellnessandwanderlust.net. I wish you all a fabulous day and I'll catch you next week.